This message is brought to you by DoNotAge.org, the longevity research organisation that's on a mission to extend health span for as many people as possible via products that actually work. Start your journey today at DoNotAge.org and use code LAMA for a 10% discount. That's L-L-A-M-A. The Romantic obviously wants me to be as fit and strong and fast at 60 as I was at 30, 25, even 40. But the pragmatist in me knows that's not possible. I have to use wisdom. I can't just throw youth at the problem. Hello again and welcome to Llama, the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. My name is Peter Bowes. This is where we explore the science and stories behind human longevity. Now, when was the last time you went for a ride on your bike? Do you still own a bike? Were you once a cyclist and for whatever reason either lost interest or the physical stamina to head out for a long ride? Well, maybe you just think it's a young person's pastime. Well, no surprise, that's not my view. I love cycling, especially as part of a a triathlon. I'm a happy amateur, but my interest in this subject was piqued when I heard about The Midlife Cyclist, a new book by Phil Cavell. It presents a roadmap for the 40-plus rider who wants to train hard, ride fast and stay healthy. So let's talk about it. Phil, welcome to the Live Long and Master Aging podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Peter. Joining us from, I'm in Los Angeles, you're in my home country, the UK, of course, in Marlow in Berkshire. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And it's a, a fabulous autumn day here in, uh, in, in Marlow. You're making me a little homesick because of COVID. I haven't been back for quite a long time, but hopefully we'll be making that journey in the next uh, few months. So let's talk about your book of film. It is uh, titled and the first chapter kind of leaps out at me, The Aging Cyclist Growing Old Disgracefully. So I suppose the the first question is, and leaving aside the disgraceful bit for the moment, how old do you have to be to be an ageing cyclist? 40 sounds quite young to me. Yeah, 40 sounds very young to me. Um, I agree. But probably, I guess, medically, I guess we're looking at 45 plus, Peter. Um, and the, and the, in the first chapter, I talk about you know, what our expected lifespan would be going back through the centuries. And really, we didn't start living into our 40s and 50s until this century. Um, the Obviously, the upper classes might might do that in the last century, in the, in the, in the 19th century. But the 20th century and the 21st century, the first two centuries, where we kind of typically can expect to live, um, you know, to into our 50s and 60s and 70s. So, in that sense, I suppose you'd have to say genetically midlife would be 40s. And reading through your book, age does matter, doesn't it? We are all growing older and there is a, a significance to that and, it, and it's undeniable. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I guess that's the first pillar of the book, if you like, that just to accept that, you know, you're not Peter Pan and that you are aging and it's a biological process. And exercise can be used to ameliorate the effects of that aging process, but you can't stop the body clock. And, uh, you know, that's why the first chapter is talking about actually biologically what's going on as you get older. And you talk about a quiet revolution occurring in the ranks of middle aged, uh, older sportsmen and women. That quiet revolution. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a good question. And and I I guess the missing piece of the book, um, and, and I was talking to somebody about this recently, is probably this book is actually part science and part sociology. We're the first generation, I mean, in 300,000 generations of biped that have ever tried to exercise like this 
into our middle and uh, in older age. N- never, never. My parents didn't. Your parents probably didn't. And if they did, they were outliers. They, you know, they were one-offs, if you like. So we're the first generation ever to try and exercise hard, focus on performance as we get into middle age and beyond. And that's, and that's a sociological thing. There's been changes, sociological changes, that have triggered this um, this exercise revolution. But we're the pathfinders. No one's done it. It's an, ex- it's an exercise, a test. No one's ever done it. We're the first generation to do this. Uh, and, and, and in a sense, we're shining the torch for generations that come behind us, our children and our grandchildren. So this is a podcast about ageing, the ageing process and, and longevity. We're not shy about talking about age, that a lot of people are and, and actually refuse to acknowledge their age, to talk about their age. I'm just a few months away from my 60th birthday. Uh, how old are you? I'm a couple of months behind you, literally. I'm uh, yeah, I'm 60 in June next year, so I'm just a few months behind you. But we would have been in the same class at school, Peter, because I was always the youngest in my class. So we would have been almost certainly the same year group in, at school. So I'm 60 next year. That's interesting. Yes, March 1962 for me. So tell me just a little bit about your life and your, your career in terms of, uh, of cycling and, and your experience and what brought you to this point? I was a racer. I was uh, what they call in, 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 um, in, in England, well, you remember, first cat racer. So I was a good club racer, but I wasn't a great racer. I was never talented enough to be a professional or consider going professional. So I was just a good club cyclist, got injured. And my co-director at CycleFit, he also got injured. And that took us on a journey of exploration about how the body and the bicycle behave together, how they interact. And it was that journey that um, led us to start CycleFit 20 years ago, just over 20 years ago. And at the time, it was quite a unique service in Europe, certainly. Um, And so we became busy quite quickly. And we've always just been fascinated by the relationship between the body and the bicycle so we um, started a scientific conference that looked at that subject. We've been fortunate enough to work with some incredibly talented physios, doctors, surgeons uh, along the way. Some of them, many of them are actually, you know, featured in the book, if you like. So we've kind of learned together over the last 20, 25 years about how the body and the bicycle interact together. Does that what you mean by my story? <laughs> Exactly. Yes. No, that perfectly uh, de- defines uh, certainly who you are and, and where you are. And what, what really interests me is from your own personal experience, can you define the aging body, the aging athlete, the passing of the years? What does it do to a cyclist in particular? What's happening in your body? And there's many changes, but let's just look at a few of them. Your your heart rate or your ability of your heart to beat fast is dropping uh, year on year. It's a fairly linear, predictable, trackable response. And that that means that essentially, if nothing else changes, your VO2 max is declining over time. Um, and that's just a biological fact. So you can offset that um, um, if you want to um, by by training and um, diet, etc, etc. But essentially, your your heart rate, your ability of your heart to beat as high and as fast is dropping. And at the same time, you're um, losing muscle fibres, and that's called sarcopenia, and it's featured in the book. Um, not a popular topic, but you're losing muscle fibres, and that's okay because you can build the remaining ones up to be bigger and compensate. You can't stop the loss, but you can um, keep the muscle bulk. Um, and 
And then there's also things like um, in men, our testosterone is declining at a fairly linear trackable rate also. In women, there's obviously hormonal changes around the menopause and perimenopause. Um, that sometimes those changes are less predictable and trackable than men with our testosterone decline. But nevertheless, there is perimenopause and then menopause. So these are sort of changes, biological kind of uh, waypoints that we pass through. Uh, and the interesting thing is, is what happens when you try to preserve high level performance as you go through these waypoints, Peter. You mentioned VO2 max, just for anyone who doesn't know what that is. Can you explain? Yeah, it's the ability of your body to uptake pro- in, in, in oxygen, essentially, as a proportion of your body weight. So, you know, it's your, it's your respiratory potential expressed as a, as, as, as a, as a, as a represented against your body weight, your VO2 max, a very big metric in the 80s and 90s in bike racing, probably in triathlon as well, actually. Uh, it's sort of fallen out of favour a little bit now. But I still, I still think it's, you know, it's, it's known as a kind of a, as a, as a biological potential, if you like. And another metric that you write about is heart rate variability. And up until fairly recently, until I started wearing a, an aura ring, it was something that I hadn't really paid much attention to. And now every day I look at my phone and see what my overnight heart rate variability was. And it is fascinating. Can you explain the significance of that? Yeah, that's right. And heart rate variability is the so we always think about if our hearts are beating at sixty beats per minute, but the 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 the, the duration between the beats is is equidistant, and it's not in fact that's heart literally heart rate variability the variation between the beats, and counterintuitively one wants a greater variation not less variation, and less variation uh, between the beats is significant because it probably denotes that you're tired or you've got underlying illness or you're just not feeling, you know, you're not feeling so strong. So that's what heart rate variability is. And you actually want to have high heart rate variability as an indicator of whether you should be training or not. How important is it, do you think, for people to to fully understand all of these metrics? And and your book is is a fascinating reader because it's full of scientific detail. It's incredibly well researched for anyone who wants to delve into all of this. Just in the back of my mind, I'm thinking of the, the happy amateur who perhaps doesn't, and I hate to use the word obsess, but y- you know what I mean, to have a, a deep interest in all of this kind of stuff. How important is it to, to fully understand it? Or is it perhaps a distraction to some who just simply want to get out on the bike to get some great exercise and have a bit of fun? Yeah, agreed. I totally agree with you. And and you know what? This is a secret between you and I, Peter. I'm sort of more the latter than the former. Personally, I was when I trained. I think I actually think I'm quite open about it in the book, you know, that I am, philosophically speaking, I'm the latter. I'm a barefoot cyclist. But I want people to know the, the science and the detail so they can use it usefully. But I think in the book, I also give you an escape route. If you're not interested in the hard science, then you can. Uh, for example, you haven't got to use FTP or heart rate. You can use or power. You can use the Borg scale, which is a very simple way of looking at how much effort you're putting into your cycling. So I think in the book, I'm quite careful that 
to give you the detail and the science, but also give you a bailout option. You do. And it's a great read for anyone who really does want to dive deep into that science. But equally, I think the the philosophy side of this book is fascinating. And and it's fascinating to anyone who isn't necessarily a cyclist. I think to anyone who is is growing older, there are some real gems in this book that we can can read and, and we can use in our lives. And one thing that you write that really struck a chord with me was that you said being a successful midlife athlete, and I guess that can apply to swimming or running or other kinds of sports, isn't about living life as if you were half your age or less. It's about gracefully and rationally accepting the arc of life with all of its challenges. The arc of life. How do you see that arc of life? Yeah, I think we have to sort of dig in deep into all of us ourselves and find the pragmatist. Um, the romantic obviously wants me to be as fit and strong and fast at 60 as I was at 30, 25, even 40. But the pragmatist in me knows that's not possible. But I also still want to be a good father. I still want to be a good husband. I still want to work hard and ride and on occasion ride quite hard. And it's, and the balancing of those now means that I have to use wisdom. I can't just throw youth at the problem. I've got to use wisdom and knowledge and pragmatism and sense to deal with that and to manage all those life forces. So I'm sort of, I'm kind of imploring all of us to invoke wisdom. We can't be young again, but my God, we can be wise. You know, we can use that life experience to make pragmatic decisions about how we balance these things. I think that's what I'm saying, Peter. And you've mentioned Peter Pan already, and you say your Peter Pan clients are sometimes quite hard to work with. You say the body gets old, but the mind refuses to accept it. And you say you worry about these people. What, what do you mean by that? I do. And when I say difficult to work with, I'm not sure I use that word. I mean, my clients, you know, generally I see my clients, the ones that are having problems, I see the most. So I, I get closer to their problems. Um, the Peter Pans are, yeah, you're right. It, the, the fact that they don't want to grow old and they want to still ride hard and achieve all these things and go and do massive great multi-day rides in the Alps and that's fantastic it's laudable it's wonderful it's inspiring uh, but in this at the same time they've got to put strategies in around that 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 are in keeping with you know what's going on for their body um and what what I don't what I what I find concerning sometimes is if I just look at them and think you're just embedding fatigue um, and then you're embedding inflammation and then you might be embedding bigger problems and just, you know, trying to implore them to be a bit, have some common sense. And, you know, if they look down at their training plan and they've got, they've got one more training ride to do because the event is next week, it's like, look, drop it. Just, you know, that, the best thing you could do is just now go and eat properly, sleep properly. And just drop that session. That session's not going to help you. Really, it won't. It's just going to embed even more fatigue. You know, we can't shrug those things off at 60, Peter. Well, I certainly can't. You know, 25, 30, yes, you could. Essentially, what you're saying is, and what I'm understanding is, that people can be quite dogged in terms of their determination as they get older. They're not being deliberately difficult. They are being perhaps over-determined to achieve something. That's right. And I like difficult clients. I mean, I guess... In a sense, cycle fit because of what we are and who we are. We draw those clients to us. So, you know, so I do like them and they're a challenge, but I also, they're the, you know, that they are the ones that keep me awake at night. You know, the ones that are, you know, I think, well, you know, I know for a fact you've, you've done enough now. You've done as much as you can. Nothing's going to make any difference now for the event. 
you know, your body just needs to rest. And, and you probably know this yourself. When you're forced to rest, you know, because of illness or injury, and you're just forced to, that's just how it is. You know, often you, you come out of those occasions just like fizzing with energy. And that's how athletes of our age, Peter, should start these events. We should start these events where we're challenging our body in a way that nobody ever has before in any other century. We should start these events fizzing with energy. We should be like, my God, I feel 30 years younger because that's the best chance of us doing well in the events and um, and being happy at the end and then fulfilling all the other things we need to do in our life. Uh, and that's right. the message I'm trying, I'm trying to get across in the book and also to my clients. It's like, really, you've really got to take care of yourself and rest more than you think you need to and eat better than you think you need to and sleep more than you think you need to and then get to the start line, you know, desperate to come off the leash and, and perform. It's such a sensible, simple message, but so difficult to accept, isn't it, for some yeah. people? Because we, we all want to, to push ourselves. And we might not even see it as pushing ourselves. We just think we can do it and we don't want to waste a day. It, it's a beautiful, sunny, clear blue sky day. And you just want to get out and do a run, do a walk or, or do a bike ride. Yeah, and we're a self-selecting group. I mean, the the fact that you know, there's millions of us trying to exercise hard into into middle age and beyond. Peter, we're a self-selecting group. You know, that's there's no it's not an accident we're doing this. It's what we what's what we love. You know, we're just trying to keep going. And in a sense, you know, the clock kind of moves in the background. We're not aware of the body clock every day. So it's just it's just another rainy Tuesday in November. But you know what? It's not. It's one year on, and you know, there's biological changes taking place. So you know, I'm not trying to be the voice of doom. I'm a very optimistic person. But to achieve success uh, athletically at our, our age does require to, to us to stay, take a step back once in a while and just dignify what's going on, you know. And a big part of looking after ourselves, and, and, and again, reading through your book, and you put a lot of emphasis on what we eat, our diet being so crucially important. How important? And what is the biggest mistake that you see aging athletes make there's several i mean this is to be to be i'm not a nutritionist um so i was i was lucky enough to reach out to some very good people uh catherine brown from british cycling was one of them who's great help and she was a great help in 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 what we can change nutritionally and one of them is really unpopular uh and the the biggest one which has probably received the most attention in the book is that the the controlling of alcohol content and, and I guess if there's one thing that we can do as midlife athletes, and I'm, I'm not saying be temperate or don't drink, I'm just saying in times when you're training hard and then you've got an event at the end of that training block, I would my advice would be to stop drinking altogether during that period uh, because it will interfere with sleep. It will definitely interfere with, with rapid eye movement sleep, which you definitely that's the recovery sleep. So that's going to be interfered with. And it's nutritionally, it doesn't have any value whatsoever. Ethanol doesn't have any value. It's an obligate toxin, so the body tries to clear it first before it does anything else. Uh, and also it has, it has an, a deleterious effect on your heart rhythms. Now, none of those things are good for us as midlife athletes. Now, I've not always followed that advice. Uh, and in the book, I think I'm pretty open about why I now have to follow it. But I think if I could say one thing, I'd say, by all means, drink by all means, enjoy wine and whatever other drink that you like. But hard training blocks that lead to an event at the end of it, I would say that there's probably no good limit 
a lower limit or upper limit for you to drink. I'd say probably you should just give up alcohol altogether. And I know that's not a nice message to hear, and it's not actually a very nice message to deliver, but I think the evidence is quite clear now about that. Well, it is a fascinating section of the book, and you're right, it isn't a message that everyone wants to hear. But what really interests me is, and we've talked about wisdom as you get older, I think one of the benefits of of getting older is that wisdom and that you learn from your mistakes. And you can learn from your mistakes as an athlete in terms of all the different aspects that go into your training, the, the time of day that you train, what you eat the night before, what you don't eat the night before. And of course, that includes alcohol intake. And people our age, perhaps much younger with with the benefit of of wisdom, I think generally realise that too much alcohol or indeed any alcohol before an athletic performance isn't going to be a good thing. So what interests me is the fact that some of us don't necessarily listen to ourselves. We, We have that wisdom and yet sometimes keep on making mistakes, whether it's alcohol or food consumption or some other aspect of training, that we keep on doing the wrong thing, even though our brain is telling us that we shouldn't be doing it. Yeah, that's right. And one thing that I found very powerful, and I wanted to include it in the book, and I didn't, and I probably will include it in the next one, um, is fasting. Now, I, I had to start, I had to have some fairly serious surgeries over the last few years. The last one was a few years ago, and I had to lose a lot of weight in going to surgery. And I couldn't exercise, obviously, because of the, the, um, I had a, a spine injury. So I started to do intermittent fasting. And I found it very powerful, um, as a middle aged man, middle aged athlete, um, very powerful beyond the weight loss. I mean, it did, it, you do can lose weight through fasting. But I found it very powerful for other reasons. Uh, emotionally, I found it powerful. I found it sociologically quite interesting. I did find it a very powerful phenomenon. And I've kept going with it. You know, I take a month off and then I'll have a month on. I'll do intermittent fasting twice a, a, a week. And I, and I didn't include it in the book because I thought, well, it's quite controversial still. Uh, and the evidence is mixed. But personally, I find it very, to not eat for a day, you know, and I, the way I do it is I, I, I stop eating the night before and I go through the entire day without eating and then I have an evening meal in the evening with my family, reduced not too many calories. But So I've, I've gone complete, you know, I've gone complete 24 hours, enough eating, nothing. It's powerful. We do, we're not used to being hungry in the first world, are we? And I do find it quite, so that's why I find it powerful for me, on many levels. But I also find it very powerful in terms of I think it makes people our age, I think, quite mentally strong. And I, for me, I also think it makes me physically strong. Now, I've got no evidence to back that up, and that's a cohort of one, Peter, I should say. I was going to put it in the book. I don't know what your opinion is about that. And we'll continue this conversation in just a moment. Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Well, I think it's fascinating. And regular listeners to this podcast will know that I've had quite a lot of experience of fasting. I've taken part in clinical trials uh, to do with fasting and a fasting mimicking diet that was developed by Dr. Walter Longo at uh, University of of Southern California. And uh, I was certainly one of the first group of, uh, I think it was 19 of us, uh, using that diet, which is a, a type of 
intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting, of course, being an umbrella term that can involve lots of different forms of of fasting. And and yours is quite close to the the 5-2 regime that was developed by a BBC colleague in the UK. And a lot of people very successfully follow. But intermittent fasting can mean for some people it could be a 23-1 diet where they just have one meal a day and they follow that almost on a, a permanent basis. Or it could be perhaps a a fasting regime that involves time-restricted eating, which is what I've really sort of gravitated towards, so that I have my first meal in the morning, maybe breakfast about 9am, and that follows a three and a half mile hike with my dog at about 7am before breakfast, and then I try to stop eating by six or seven latest in the evening. So I've got a long spell of usually 12 to 14 hours overnight when I'm not eating. And I I find that works best for me. And you're absolutely right, Phil. I think the jury is still out in terms of the science. There is a lot of positive science that suggests that this is is very beneficial for us. And and one thing I find interesting, especially talking about alcohol as we were, when you're fasting, even if it's just a an 18-hour fast or almost a 24-hour fast, as as you say, missing breakfast, not eating till the next evening meal, there's no thought of alcohol in your mind during that time. You're focused on on not eating and looking forward to that meal, but there's no desire to drink any alcohol. That, that's right. And, and, and I wanted to mention it in the book because I, 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 the whole book, it goes back to what our evolved function. The whole book is, you know, one of its pillars is evolved function. What did we evolve to do? And if you think about it, in the ancestral environment, we would have to be our most capable when we were our most hungry. Otherwise, we would never come through it, would we? And that's the bit I'm interested in about fasting. So when I get off my bike at Maidenhead Station and ride from Maidenhead to where I live in Marlow on my bike after not having eaten for 26 hours, I feel fine. Do you know what? I've gone through some wobbly moments, Peter. But for that bit, when I'm actually at my most food deprived, I feel fine. I can ride home fine. I'm not going to ride fast, but I feel fine. And that's what I think is remarkable. And that's the bit I'm interested in kind of experimenting with you know, for myself at the moment. I'm not going to write it or, or prosotize it or anything else until, you know, but that, I do think there's something there and I do think there's something there for people our age. And I'll say no more than that because it's, I think it is controversial and I don't think it's all proven. I was doing some research after I read the Michael Mosley book. Michael Mosley being the BBC yes. guy that I refer to who put a lot of work in, has, has met Dr Longo at, at USC and I think a big part of his work was, was based on what was yes, happening that's right. at the University of Southern that's California. Right, that's right. And I, I, it is fascinating. But I didn't put it in the book. But alcohol is in the book. The effect of ca- caffeine is in the book. Insulin resistance is in the book. Um, and, you know, maybe re- our, our ability to metabolize sugar is getting re- is reduced as we get older. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's, there is plenty about nutrition in the book. Fasting isn't, though. Right. And uh, I agree with you. I think we need to really delve into the science, I, I think. And I should also say, and always say this, anyone listening to this, if you're thinking about trying fasting for the first time, speak to your doctor first, because it isn't for everyone. It could be harmful. It could be extremely dangerous if you do it in the wrong way. And we're all individually very different. So speak to your doctor, get some good professional advice. But from 
my personal experience, I, I really go along with what you say, that you can have an extraordinary amount of physical endurance actually during a fast. It maybe isn't wise to do a heavy weightlifting session while you're, you're fasting. There are lots of quirks and nuances to this. But the other really interesting aspect to this is the impact on our longevity. And there's lots going on in our bodies that we can't see and not necessarily feel during a fast. But our bodies change in, in response to a lack of food. Hormonal changes happen that the science suggests could be very good for us long run in terms of uh, preparing us for, for older age and perhaps preventing some of those serious diseases yes. of, of old age, like, like cancer and heart disease. Yes, agreed, agreed. I feel it, but at the moment it's intuition, not, not, not proven science, Peter. So I think you're right to caveat that, yeah. Let's talk about, as I say, this is a podcast, we talk about aspirations in terms of longevity. Do you think about what your life will be like in 10, 20, 30 years' time? Is there something that you're, you're aiming for in terms of... Uh, what you might be able to do i guess i i really want to keep riding um and i we do a family five or seven or eight k run every every saturday um I, i'm my daughter is only 11 years old we had children very late um and it's really important to me that um that i you know i i exercise and run with her and ride with her you know while i can because you know i'm like you i'm gonna be 60 next year and soon I'll be 70 and, you know, she'll be 20. And it's, you know, it's really important that when I'm 70, I can still cycle and maybe just shuffle along a bit running. Maybe not. I don't know. But, you know, it's really important that I stay active and stay fit and stay, stay strong, you know, for her because she deserves to have me like that. Uh, it's not her fault that, you know, we uh, I had, you know, we had children when I was I became a dad when I was already quite old. So I feel an obligation. And also I enjoy it. You know, it's it's I cycling is fantastic the slight irony which i point out in the book that the better cyclist you want to be at our age uh, actually the more you probably need to start dropping cycling sessions out of your training plan but nevertheless it's still cycling i enjoy the most it's interesting you should mention children because i ask this question quite frequently of people and almost always the answer relates to their children or their grandchildren getting older and being around and being physically able to be part of their lives. It, it's not just a, it's not a selfish thing wanting to aspire to great longevity. There's generally another reason, and that's connected to your family or those close to you. And another reason often cited is just sharing the wisdom of your life. And, and I suppose you do this in, in a big way in your book here. And uh, we've talked about wisdom and those lessons that you learn. And, and clearly, you've learned many lessons as, as an athlete that you want to share. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a, I was a chaotic athlete. Um, uh, and I think I, I, I confess that in the book. I was not, you know, I, uh, I was, I rode in a team or a club where there were more, more gifted athletes and there were more disciplined athletes. For me, racing and bike racing, was I just loved the adventure of it. I loved the fact that I went out and then I had no idea what was going to happen. I had no particular race plan. I didn't know whether I was going to come first or last or not come in at all. And I just loved that about it. I just loved that adventure that, you know, you start a race, mountain bike race, road race, criterium. And it was just an adventure. I loved that, a drama f filled full of characters. And, you know, you'd spend three hours or whatever in this drama and then there'd be an outcome. And, oh, sometimes you'd win, often you wouldn't. But I loved that, you know, and it's it's that sense of adventure that I hope comes across in the book. I, I keep trying to kind of pepper it in there. You know, you can try and metricate this and plan it and as, as much as you like, but, you know, it's 
bike racing and cycling, in a sense, is a metaphor for life. You can only control so much, you know. And is that a big part why you wrote this? What you want people to take away is is inspiration. I want them to in, before beyond anything. I want them to enjoy reading the book. If they take anything out of it which is useful, fine. If they take anything out there which is thought provoking, that's even better. But more than that, I just want them to enjoy the experience of writing, of reading the book. I guess what I want people to just consider, take a step back, and if the book encourages them to take a step back and consider what they're doing and what they might change to make the outcomes better, that would be a perfect outcome for me. And I have had plenty of response from people who said, yes, I've, I've changed the way I train or I've changed, I've given up alcohol and around heavy training blocks. They've made small adjustments. They've really focused on sleep. That's what I've heard over and over again from people. Do you know what? The sleep thing really hit me hard that I, you know, I, I thought as I got older, I needed, I needed less sleep. The whole Margaret Thatcher thing, three hours a night, you know, it's like, well, that's not true. You know, it, it so uh, that a lot of people said, oh, the sleep things hit hard to me. I, I go to bed an hour earlier. I don't look at my iPhone, uh, you know, for an hour before bed. The sleep hygiene thing is important. And I'm encouraging melatonin production. So, you know, these little things, fine. You don't have to adjust very much to get quite a big outcome change. I think what's really nice is the way that these days we can, we can talk about wisdom and the lessons that you learn, but applying that in conjunction with the new science. And it's almost like putting a jigsaw together, isn't it? And making the pieces fit that suddenly things begin to make sense, like, like sleep. We haven't always, we still don't fully understand sleep. And I think we understand its importance, but we're still figuring out how it works and, and why many of us, and especially at our age, still have difficulty sleeping or maybe if you can get to sleep why you can't stay asleep for seven or eight hours is a great frustration to a lot of people but we're slowly beginning to to piece together that jigsaw and and, and your book certainly helps with that yeah and i think sleep is i think is the is the magic wand here actually and this whole thing about middle-aged people and as you got older you needed less and less sleep because you were you know you're you, were, you know you had this senescence going on your cells weren't renewing weren't replacing and therefore you didn't have to spend an energy doing it with offsetting senescence and therefore you need less sleep it's just not true you know people our age peter need to sleep as many as much as somebody who's 30 40 years younger we need sleep as much um and 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 sleep is where the magic gets done and you're quite right we don't understand what that is science really doesn't understand that yet and science is you know scientists are put their hands up science isn't about answers it's about questions about asking the right questions and then testing them and then retesting them and then passing them back to somebody else who tests them in a different way you know, you get to a gold standard view about what's probably happening. Uh, but science very rarely settles and then that's it. There's no change, does it? It's, you know, it's an evolving picture. And I think sleep is, the, is right now is one of the really big ones. No one really knows, but we all absolutely know it's crucial. We cannot recover uh, if we don't sleep. And people our age uh, and older and slightly younger can't athletically perform without sleep. Simple as that. Phil, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. The book is full of fascinating nuggets, just like the one that you've been referring to, and I, I'd thoroughly recommend it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Peter. Lovely talking to you. As I say, a really inspiring read, and it certainly makes me want to get on my bike more often than I do. It's called The Midlife Cyclist. It's about more than cycling, a lot of ageing wisdom in there that is relevant to all of us as we grow older. I'll put a link to the book into the show notes for this episode. You'll find them at the Live Long and Master Ageing website. That's lamapodcast.com, double L-A-M-A podcast.com. 
lamapodcast.com. You'll also find a transcript of this conversation there. The Lama Podcast is a Healthspun Media production. You can follow us in social media at Lama Podcast and contact me by direct message at Peter Bowes. Thanks for listening. FlexBeam is a portable red light therapy device that's now being used by leading athletes, including the Norwegian tennis player Kasper Rud. Whenever you put the FlexBeam on, you feel it starts to work right away. I need something that can help repair all the fibres that I have broken in the surfs. The infrared lights penetrate your skin and makes the muscle tissue recover faster. FlexBeam, I keep it with me all the time. Recharge Health is offering Llama Podcast listeners an $80 discount on the purchase of a FlexBeam device. Go to the website recharge.health and use the code LLAMA at checkout. That's L-L-A-M-A. You'll also find the link in the show notes for this episode.